0: The greatest secret ever kept from the world is housed in a bunker beneath the earth, and Dakota Prentice is gonna steal it for love. That's right, pally, we're playing Steal the Stars, Mac Rogers' two-barreled sci-fi noir thriller. We got aliens, we got secrets, we got romance. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. We have got a treat for you today. Well, I mean, we always have treats for you. That's kind of the thing. You listen to the show. We bring you treats. No tricks that you know of. Wink. Today's show is Steal the Stars by New York playwright Mac Rogers. It's a collaboration between Mac's theater company, Gideon Media, and the science fiction publishing house, Tor. If Mac's name sounds familiar, it's because he's the scribe behind the GE Podcast Theater Productions, The Message, and Life After, the latter of which was directed by audio drama legend and friend of the show, John Dryden. But now it's Steal the Stars, a near-future story of forbidden love and defense contractors and, oh yeah, a secret goddamn alien. We got half of episode one from Tor, so in a twist, we're playing the back half of the episode, because the back half is the part that will grab you by your butt and yank you heedlessly into the story. So here's what you got to know. Dakota Prentice, or Dak, is the head of security at Quill Marine, a secretive and private defense research institution. She doesn't take crap from anyone, she can beat up a man twice her size, and she's an absolute professional. Until she meets Matt Salem, the new hire for her security team, See, fraternization of any kind is forbidden at Quill Marine. The thing the facility is built to house is far too important for any one employee to have an attachment to another. It's far too important and far too deadly. That's why security procedures are so tight at Quill, and why Dak and Matt Salem have to go through like eight levels of security in order to even get close to Object E. We join them as they enter the elevator that will take them to Object E's hangar, assuming that the gnome will let them through. We join Matt and Dak as they wait to descend.
1: Do we need to press a floor number or... It only
2: goes to one floor
1: building doesn't even look like it has more than one floor okay so we're going down okay so we're going way down is there anything i need to remember
2: how you probably didn't shoot your mouth off during incursions like that
1: um i think we've stopped i know we've stopped
2: thanks a lot gnome is there a problem is it a problem for you Well, I'm not claustrophobic, just... No traumatic history connected to enclosed spaces?
1: Um... One time I had a guy go septic on me when we were pinned down for a week No proper
2: names. Right. Shit. If it makes any difference, Nomi, he's a new fish and I'm trying to get him there before power-up. Are you talking to... The gnome works upstairs? His job's to stop people randomly, do redundant background checks, and study their reactions.
1: Their reactions? To being in a stopped elevator?
2: Among other things.
1: God, we didn't have security this intense at Camp Victory, and they were actually trying to kill us there. I'll get used to it. You gotta do the
2: same shit on the way back out. How old are you? Oh, thirty. Jesus, I remember thirty. You can't be that much over thirty. I'm enough. One of us really needs to say something. Have you. So uh, if I
1: was SEAL Team 6 and Lauren is forced to recon and you were. Rangers, 75th. Jesus. That's one hell of a. Yeah,
2: we got around.
1: So the people who run this place, they're not just pulling from one branch, they're scouting everybody. $5
2: says right now the gnome's writing. Too inquisitive. Problematic.
1: So what do we all have in common?
2: You signed papers, right? For this gig? More papers than I've ever seen in my life. Binding you. Locking you in for two decades to a thing they wouldn't even let you see before you signed. Why would you do a thing like that? Because... Speak freely, Lieutenant Commander. Because I didn't know where else to go. You left the service, and then you couldn't live without it. You can't even
1: talk to people. It's like they're on another planet, and... That's what we all have in common, isn't it?
2: Yep. This
1: is where you end up
2: when you can't go home.
1: Okay, so... If we're moving again, does that mean I pass? Not till you've been
2: through the last part. Which is... At the other
1: end. The other end of what?
2: The other end of this. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's neat. How far does it go? The equivalent of a city block. Welcome to Hangar 11. You see that up there, hanging over us?
1: Oh, is that that's like... That's bird's
2: the- eye. That's our control center, security meeting, shit like that. You'll have a rotation there. I'll show you the way up after the thing.
1: The thing, meaning the last part. We're
2: slipping, chief. Morning, Patty. Forgot it was New Fish Day. Repressed, more like. What's the clock? Four minutes. No one really put you through it, huh? God, we gotta get that guy laid. <laughs> Not it. Deputy Security Chief Patricia Garber. You call her Patty and you basically live or die by her opinion. You got it? Hi, I'm Matt Salem. Uh, you're nobody to me until you do the last thing. Sure you don't want to hand him off? At this point. Sure, once you've done the elevator with somebody. So the last thing is inside that tent? No, that's the second to the last thing. The last is inside the thing inside the tent. If you're picturing a two-person sleeper for Boy Scouts, you're picturing wrong. More like a tent for a fancy outdoor wedding. Really big, really white, really opaque. Now start walking. I'm right behind you. Okay. I didn't get to stop by lockup. You need a sidearm? Please. Usual deal with turndown service? Yeah, put them on hold. Don't give them the go unless I say. Power up in a few. See you on the other side. See you there. I pull back the flap and make him walk ahead of me into the tent. I don't care about seeing his face. They'll get that on the cameras. I'm more interested in his full-body response.
1: So I'm guessing... Object E?
2: Keep walking. Straight at it. It's not any of the fun shapes. Not a sphere, not a flying saucer. More of like... an oblong, boring oval.
1: Now, if that was a thing we were building... Go around to the side. ...it wouldn't look like it had been dragged through a canyon... It would look new. Which
2: means? We didn't build it, we found it. Right here, in fact. 11 years ago, the night it crash-landed. The night they started building this place around it. Would have been Arthur Quill Naval Base then, didn't privatize for another two years. And nobody noticed it? (laughs) A lot of people noticed it. Made a pretty loud noise when it hit ground. And everyone who noticed it? Works for us now. Or is living pretty good somewhere quiet? See the crack down the side? Right. It doesn't look like it at first, but if you turn sideways, you can fit in. Shit! Yeah. Can you see okay? Assuming I'm not hallucinating right now. Do you see a seven-foot gray alien? Yup. Then you're not hallucinating. Say hi to Moss. It's amazing how much he looks like your standard alien from a billion drunken abduction stories. The long, thin, grayish, pale body, the oversized head, the huge black eyes where you can see your reflection. Whenever some idiot claims he got probed, the sketch artist always ends up with something that looks like moss. Except.
1: What's that on him, on his chest? What's it look like? Well, it looks like moss, which is where he got his name from. Yeah. Is he dead?
2: We don't know how he defines that.
1: Has he moved since the. Nope. Does he have a heartbeat or some kind of equivalent of a. Not
2: for 11 years.
1: So that's stuff growing on him. The moss.
2: How is it still alive? I keep a hand on the gun in my pocket. He still hasn't passed the real test. Touch him. Not on the moss part, but anywhere else. Really? Really.
1: Whoa. He's warm?
2: Nice. Most people recoil when they notice that. Make a sound.
1: He hasn't moved in 11 years, but he's warm. Okay. Is
2: that... Is that... It's called the harp, because it looks like a harp. You see that door over there? We think that's the engine room. We think the harp is the engine, or a part of the engine. Can I see it? That noise you're hearing, that's power-up. You do not want to be in the room with the harp when it's powering up. Trust me. Why is it powering up? We don't know. All we know is about every 100 hours or so, it happens. What happens? This happens. Powered all the way up It kills everything in Quill Marine for about 30 seconds Power, surveillance, everything Jesus Christ Just us and him My hand's still on the sidearm But I can see you How can I see you? We don't know Where's the light coming from? We don't know So, new fish. Matt Salem. What are you thinking? I'm thinking
1: this is the job.
2: And my hand's not on the sidearm anymore. You passed. Oh, fuck.
1: Shit. I'm, uh. No, I'm. Jesus, this didn't happen. You're right. Because. This
2: never happened. This never happened. So, what's the verdict? Do we shoot him or not? Steal the Stars by Mac Rogers. Starring Ashley Atkinson. Presented by Tor Labs. Produced by Gideon Media. Episode 1 also features Nima Jarabchi, Rebecca Comtois, Sean Williams, Jorge Cordova, Brittany N. Williams, Daryl Lathan, Kelly Ray O'Donnell and Brian Silliman Music by Linda Worsley Sound design by Bart Fassbender Directed by Jordana Williams Next time on Steal the Stars Glass is in session
1: Direct exposure to the harp is dangerous
2: Ghost Town, Ghost Town, clear everyone out
1: Okay, people, I want to clear this hangar. Now!
0: I don't know what Quill's future is without Moss.
1: Shit, shit, Dak, it's early. Power-up's early. It's happening right now. A lot of people work here. We work here. Does everyone understand?
0: Anything hey, you, you want to tell me? <laughs> I, I don't have a death wish. So now, the stage is set. Moss, the harp, Object E... But the deadliest object of all is the object of Dax's affection. If you're curious, and lordy I bet you are, you pervy little sneaks, subscribe to Steal the Stars to hear the rest of this thoroughly enjoyable, silkily plotted thriller. And now, with our feature concluded, join me over here at Camera 2 for a conversation with Mac Rogers, the playwright responsible for Steal the Stars. Take it away, past me! Mac Rogers, welcome to Radio Drama Revival.
3: Oh, thank you very much for having me, David. Thank you.
0: It is a pleasure. I wanted to start by asking, you're no stranger to science fiction. You've been writing sci-fi plays for decades, but I'm curious about how you made the switch from stage theater to audio theater. Was The Message the first audio fiction you'd ever done?
3: Yes, that's correct. I'd been interested in it for several years. I'd started listening to audio drama pretty much the same way I got into everything else in my life, was via Doctor Who. When I discovered Doctor Who when I was a little kid, that got me interested in science fiction. And as an adult, when I got back into Doctor Who after some years away, I discovered that this company called Big Finish makes Doctor Who audios starring the actors who were on the classic series in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And in the course of listening to those, I discovered I just really liked the experience of listening to audio drama. So I started experimenting with some other stuff. In much the same way, watching Doctor Who made me curious about dipping into Asimov, dipping into Bradbury, dipping into Karel Chopik, lots of other stuff. So I started like downloading BBC Radio 4 daily dramas. They just have an inexhaustible number of radio dramas in the UK.
0: Yeah, it's a hell of an archive.
3: And then from there, I started to become aware of a very modest propping up of American radio dramas because podcasts were becoming so popular. There definitely were audio drama podcasts at the time that I wrote The Message. One of the sound designers recommended that I listen to Limetown and the Black Tapes podcast to get the the feel that they wanted for the show. To my great horror when I listened to the Black Tapes podcast, which I love to continue to listen to to this day, I discovered that one of their episodes had had almost the exact same plot hook as The Message that I was currently writing which was uh, was basically like a sound that if you listen to a, a certain point later... It, it the kills unsound, you. Yes, right? exactly, the unsound. Then I heard the unsound, of, so we'd already been developing the message for a little bit. But basically what I ended up doing was I just took it in a very different direction.
0: I read in a 2015 piece in Slate that you wrote that uh, you were inspired by a big Finnish Doctor Who drama called Scherzo.
3: Exactly, yes. That the, Like, at that one, like, I just definitely... The the whole idea with that story, and it's it's brilliant like the doctor and his companion in that story is a uh, charlotte pollard they've just landed in an alternate universe um and uh, they're deprived of the tardis the time machine they travel in and um they find themselves walking through this kind of blank landscape where they're deprived of all of their senses there's nothing to see you know there's a uh, uh they, they, they 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 the only thing they could feel is they hold each other's hands to try to hold on to some sense of reality As they walk along, they're in almost a total sensory deprivation and they can talk to one another. Uh, But those are the only sounds, the sound of them talking to one another. They don't even hear their footfalls as they walk along. And then gradually they start hearing another sound that they're being stalked by some kind of creature that is Mm. using the words they say, essentially kind of remixing them and feeding them back to them. It's some kind of predatory sound creature that knows how to exist by regurgitating and reconfiguring the sounds that they make. The fascinating thing about that audio is that the only voices you hear on it are of the actor playing the doctor, that's Paul McGann, the actor playing Charlotte Pollard, that's India Fisher. It's only their two voices. The monster that's chasing them is a remix of their voices. And it's a monster made only of sound. And the really cool thing about that is that scherzo is like, it's basically sort of the most experiential audio horror story I've ever heard because the characters basically don't perceive anything the listener doesn't perceive. It's conceived as an almost pure sound adventure. For a while, I've known people who work at the Slate website, and Slate has always had podcasts, which they were popular enough that it spun off into its own company, Panoply. And when Panoply was looking to do some branded podcasts to bring some additional revenue into the company... They ended up talking to GE. GE said, you know, we'd love to revive the GE Theater Hour, which was like a show that they had back in the in the 50s. They said we'd love to revive that concept, but for audio, like the GE podcast theater. And we'd like to do a science fiction story about decoding an alien transmission. So then they needed to look for writers for that. Uh, my friend Dan Coyce, who uh, worked at Slate, said, "Oh, a, a friend of mine wrote the science fiction trilogy, The Honeycomb Trilogy. And uh, so he has experience writing serial, science fiction. And also my day job at that time was writing branded content.
0: I was gonna say, you're a triple threat.
3: exactly. like i wrote the I wrote the branded content for like some candy and gum companies, So I was able to present all the skills that they needed. For a branded podcast, he was able to pass me along to them and I I was able to interest them enough from the interview to um, to hire me to do the project. When I initially took the job, I I essentially thought that I was writing a commercial to pay my rent. I thought that essentially every other line was going to be about how GE is awesome. But that's actually not what they were after at all.
0: What were the constraints on the project? What kind of restrictions did you have for branding within The Message and Life After?
3: Initially on The Message, the idea was that GE needed to be mentioned a little bit. They were very concerned that it not sound like an ad. Because it wasn't an ad for any particular product that listeners could go out and buy. It, it was
0: Right, I can't go out and get GE medical technology. Exactly. But that is kind of a hero of the story, right, in its way.
3: Yeah, so the, the idea is basically that podcast, which was a huge watershed event in my life, from GE's point of view, that was just one of many prongs in an ongoing, you know, project that they're doing to kind of rebrand their image with the public a little bit away from washing machines and a little bit more towards, you know, we're innovators. Like they've got a giant TV ad campaign about people joining GE and becoming innovators. In the final edit, they actually removed all references to GE specifically. They just wanted the tech in there. And then when we first talked about it, they weren't even specific about which tech, it just it came up in conversation uh, one of the ad execs said, you know, for example, he said, we just want to talk about innovation. For example, G is developing this technology for sonic sound waves to be used instead of incisions in some minor surgeries. So, like to use concentrated ultrasound waves to treat some illnesses in different ways. And I was like, that's it. That's it right there. I thought back to Scherzo, that Doctor Who audio. I was like, that's it right there. That's our story. If a sound can medically treat people, then... What if we have a sound that can make people sick? Sure. That's our bad guy for the story. (laughs) That's a bad guy that the audience can experience in exactly the same way the characters are experiencing it. Despite the fact that there was something like the unsound on, on black tapes, which I loved, Scherzo was actually much more directly inspirational to the message. The unsound I only heard as I was in the process of writing the message. And so I, at first I was just like, oh, God, we've got to abandon this idea. They were like, no, no, we're, we're, <laughs> we're deep into working on this idea. And I was like, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it as far away from the unsound as possible. The whole idea with the unsound is like, you know, it's a curse, you'll die within a year of hearing it. It's really eerie. Those black tapes guys are awesome. I, I love what they do. Uh, but I was like, all right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna basically make mine as hardcore of a science fiction thing as possible. I mean, I wanted it to be scary, sure, but I wanted to take it as far away from the supernatural or from the notion of curses as possible. And fortunately the GE tech angle allowed me to do that. How much did you get to interact with director John Dryden
0: for Life After? A lot. Did he influence the script? Did you encounter him after it was written? How did
3: it go? He made several trips to the States before we went into production. I was actually able to meet him before the project was even a reality. He was just, you know, in town visiting with Panoply because, you know, uh, Andy Bowers, who runs Panoply, is a big fan of John's work. There's his his miniseries Tumon Bay and whatnot, a wonderful uh, audio drama miniseries on I believe released on BBC Radio 3 and really the first season was released in the U.S. as a podcast. Second season will mm-hmm. be released sometime soon, I think. Yes, so excited. Yeah, I know. I'm really looking forward to hearing Tim and Big. And we just went out to lunch, the three of us, and just hit it off. But I didn't think it was anything more than a just a, like a get-to-know-you session. But then shortly thereafter, GE basically came back into the picture and said, we'd like to do another one of these branded collaborations. I have friends in Chicago,
0: which is where I'm from, that are involved with a theater called Wild Claw. They do horror plays on stage. Um, And in my experience, genre theater is pretty rare. And you've been like a big proponent of of the form. How did you start writing science fiction plays like for the stage?
3: When I first moved to New York and not long after I moved to New York, I formed a theater company with, uh, astonishingly, this is very rare, with the people that I still work with to this day the people that I work with on plays, the people I work with on Steal the Stars. But when we first moved to New York, I was still heavily in a phase that was left over from college where I was very autobiographical, in my writing. But the plays were extremely personal, sometimes to the point of being exhibitionist, which is the kind of thing that you can get an audience for that in your tiny college theater because everyone's kind of obsessed with themselves and their feelings and whatnot. And I made the mistake of thinking that people would continue to be fascinated by that, you know, as I moved into adult life. You know, the people closest to me, the various slights that I might get during the day, the annoyances that I have, like, you know, my tempestuous emotions about this, that or whatever. Those things are fascinating to me. They might even be somewhat interesting to my loved ones. But beyond that very small circle, nobody cares. (laughs) You have to offer an audience something else, like a powerful story, a powerful presentation, something like that. In the process of very ugly self-examination that I did was to say to myself, would I have gone to see that play? And I realized I wouldn't have. If I'd read a description of that somewhere, I wouldn't have gone to see that play, because it's not the kind of thing I go to see. I was like, well, what do I go to see? What am I drawn to? Well, science fiction. I love science fiction. I love horror. I love thrillers, whatever. I've always loved that. So I was like, well, that's it seems kind of ridiculous that I would think that audiences should come and see a thing that I wouldn't go to see myself. What is that saying about what I think about audiences? That they should basically just show up and take their medicine from Mac while Mac <laughs> should have a nice time. And so I said, OK, well, I'm going to try to write the things that I like. But the problem is the things that I like aren't necessarily thought of as like theater genres, particularly science fiction, because in the main forms in which we're used to digesting science fiction, they're presented in ways that are really not good for the stage. In terms of uh, science fiction literature, science fiction novels, they have a lot of room for elaborate world building. That's the great joy of science fiction on the page. Science fiction, films, and television have enormous opportunities for special effects, makeup, and spectacle. Because we mostly ingest our science fiction either from novels or from film or television, the assumption is that science fiction has to be delivered in either the form of spectacle or in the form of elaborate world building. Neither one of those things are going to work in theater. You simply can't make the spectacle happen live on stage. You can do some stuff if you have a mega-budget show, like a giant Broadway West End thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. But still, you can't do the kind of stuff you do in films and television because you can't edit it together. And you don't have time for elaborate world-building. And elaborate explanations of world-building on stage are absolutely deadly. And they just put people to sleep. So I had to think long and hard about how science fiction would work on an on-stage dramatic form. Um, And the first thing that you do is you basically go to the dramatic forms that have always served theater very well and, uh, uh, and find ways to sew science fiction ideas into that. You have to remember the toolbox that you're working with. You know, one thing people say is that theater is all about the words, it's all about the dialogue. And to a certain extent, that's true. Theater really depends on good, sharp, either snappy or poetic dialogue or really striking dialogue in some form or another. And so developing the science fiction ideas, that's an important thing. But the other important thing is that in theater, you're making images with entire human bodies. You're not watching the whole body the whole time in film and television. You're watching the whole body the whole time in a play. So you need to constantly be thinking, how can I make these bodies move in interesting configurations when I write? Think what the tools of theater are and then find ways of threading science fiction into them.
0: What do you feel that science fiction specifically or genre fiction generally can address that? Uh, literary fiction quote-unquote cannot address
3: i'm not sure that there's any topics that science fiction alone can address but i think that there's approaches to it that only something like science fiction can do science fiction does a very similar thing to what fantasy and horror do which is basically how would humanity respond if suddenly a vast new power was available or if suddenly an unimaginable new force entered its life Unlike with a horror story or a fantasy story where you're talking about supernatural forces causing those things to happen, you know, a ghost, an elf, whatever. In science fiction, you're talking about extrapolations of things that have already happened. The forcible pressing of one culture onto another is something that we've already experienced many times. Mm -hmm. The alien invasion is just a massive exaggeration of it. Anytime one culture is just sure that they figured out the right way to live, we figured out what works for us. So we're going to save the world now. We're going to invade the rest of the world and make them live like us. And they'll realize that the way we live is the awesomest. And then their lives will be saved. And their lives will be made a lot better. And of course, the problem is the one way of life for one group of people might not work for, in fact, very often doesn't work for another group of people. The alien invasion is sort of like one of the like, most extreme explorations of that is that suddenly an extraordinarily foreign force and culture is suddenly pressed upon humanity. And figuring out how humanity would react to that is not something that we have to pull out of thin air. There's a lot of analogs, you know, throughout history to think of in terms of like, what's it like when your language is forcibly replaced? What's it like when your cultures are forcibly changed? New kinds of food, new customs, new ways of working. Particularly, I think why why science fiction has become more prominent in theater and why pretty much no art form can ignore science fiction at this point is that we, and over the last 20 years, we've all seen our lives completely transformed. Those of us who are old enough to be, you know, cognizant 20 years ago. And you know, <laughs> um, a lot of us are old enough to have seen the world transform. We saw it at different stages of our life. For me, it's like, I saw the world transform after I was like fully an adult. So it was like, a, it was really, you know, kind of a stunning thing. So at this point, any extraordinary invention that massively changes the way we do things, for example, the invention of sentient robots, that's nothing more than an extrapolation of what we've already experienced.
0: How do you seek to physicalize your characters in a non-visual medium?
3: For audio, I knew for a fact that the toolbox for theater was largely not going to serve me, with one big exception. Dialogue is definitely the cornerstone of theater and audio. Film and dialogue plays a role in film and television, but it's not the same. You're not developing several minute long conversations where the tension keeps rising. You're having a whole bunch of just short conversations. And the whole point is to see how each of the scenes contrasts with the one before it. You're telling the story more with the cut between shots than you are with what happens during each scene. Audio is not quite as dizzying and disorienting a leap as it is to go from stage to film or stage to television. But like I discovered that writing screenplays and writing television episodes was, um, that was a dizzying, terrifying uh, <laughs> learning curve. Audio wasn't quite as bad because you do still want to write, you know, six, seven minute conversations where the tension builds gradually. But at the same time, you're not using that human body tool that's so important in theater. With audio, you're whispering a story in someone's ear.
0: I did notice, and I I really appreciated this in episode one of Steal the Stars, is that Dak and Matt have kind of a a very locative conversation. It's not a polygraph, but in putting on the super polygraph, right, there's just a lot of suggestive hints of conversation where it's elided in a way that suggests real dialogue rather than capital R, capital D radio drama dialogue. It cuts out the stuff that you wouldn't expect somebody to say in real life.
3: I realized I didn't even properly answer your question about John Dryden. I got to work with him quite a lot on life after he gave me notes on every draft of the script. I learned a tremendous amount about how to write audio drama from him. That dude is great. Sometimes you get things where I get, he sent a script back to me and they'd just be like, this whole sequence that you've written here is just simply not going to work on audio. Uh, and we would go back and forth. But like one thing that he taught me and one thing that was really important in that Dak and Matt conversation that you're citing is like, um, is, uh, he said, you know, you really need to give some texture variance to the audience. You need to be able to give them a lot of different kinds of room tone. Because that was a problem we were running into with Life After where so many scenes were basically just set in FBI offices and there was a danger of like lots and lots of sameness to the aural environment surrounding the characters. Oh, was that why he smokes? Oh yeah. There's any like he was constantly saying anything you can think of to get him out of those offices. Now I had to force that on Life After because I'd already developed so much of the plot when he was when when John was pointing out this thing to me, I was still the stars, even though I knew a lot of it was taking place in a secret base. At this time at the outline stage, I would learned that lesson from John, and I was able to build in a lot of locations. And with that first conversation with Dak and Matt that you're talking about, a big part of it was like, we, we need to see that attraction forming between them. We need to see them getting to know each other. And I needed to make that a piece of radio drama that would be vivid and exciting, that only coming to you through your ears. And it's like, okay, I'm going to take them through an array of audio environments. And we're going to see how they behave with each other, having to be arrayed against each other in a number of different situations. They meet privately. Then they have to go through a couple of checkpoints where their behavior with one another has to be defined by the fact that other people are watching. At the second checkpoint, uh, we had the thing where she actually has to touch him to put the electrodes on him. So there's that first intimacy then it's like, OK, let's let's have a whole scene in the elevator going down to the bunker uh, because an elevator sounds totally different than, you know, a corridor with checkpoints. An elevator is a whole new kind of sound environment. So that changes what people are experiencing in their ears. But it's also a very intimate one. They're being put in this very intimate environment uh, where they can feel this growing attraction between them. Their bodies are suddenly forced to be closer together. But at the same time, they are aware that there are probably watchers, remote watchers, And then once we've gotten through that sequence, then suddenly we thrust them into a vast underground hangar when their voices are resonating against a giant space with lots of people and someone comes up and talks to them, whatever. I wanted to put their whole first getting to know you growing attraction journey as like basically a journey through a series of audio spaces that are either constrictive or expansive to kind of see the different ways they relate to each other and how they change in those different spaces. Finally, climaxing with the two of them alone in an extraterrestrial spacecraft where the room tone is entirely unlike anything that we've done before. So the whole idea was how to make this flirtation that's going to grow into the relationship that defines the whole series, how to make that a piece of radio drama and not something written for any other media.
0: I wanted to ask a question about Ashley Atkinson, who plays Dak Prentice. Atkinson has played um, a whole bunch of characters throughout her acting career, where she's both the butt of the joke and a sexual agent at the same time where it's it's both kind of funny and serious that she's desirable or desiring and here in steal the stars there's no question that dak is desirable it's not a joke or it's not even remarkable and i guess my questions are was her casting deliberately against type
3: and how does she feel about that role she definitely has remarked many times on enjoying playing the role, which is, makes me very happy because it, it, it was an enormous pleasure to work sure. with her. I'd worked with her a little bit before she played several small roles in Life After, and I just loved, you know... Um, her voice has a great texture. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so good. For such a distinctive voice, she can do a lot with it, and I definitely wrote the role, you know, really thinking of it. I wasn't a 100% sure, you know, that we could work things out to work with her, you know. We weren't sure we could necessarily clear the time, but I was very hopeful that we would. Uh, and so I wrote the scripts, um, uh, imagining her playing them. There is definitely an element to the script where Dak has a little bit of discomfort about thinking of herself as a desirable person. But I wanted it to be nothing more than like sort of like a confidence thing. I didn't want it to be like remotely like a comedy thing or whatever. Like to basically like she's a number of years older than Matt. I wanted to establish that right out of the gate. I have no idea if, if Dak looks exactly like Ashley or not. There's like that you know thing with audio drama where there's no assumption necessarily that like falling in love brings out a lot of her insecurities that they just see over the story. But I didn't want those insecurities to be in any way reified by the way that the Matt character reacts to her. There are some twists and turns to their relationship, but it was very important to me to establish number one, that Dak has had a very robust sex life in her past, uh, even if even if she hasn't had a lot of romance in her life. She's an extraordinarily competent and even brilliant person at the things she's good at. Romance is something that there hasn't been that much of in her life, and it makes her feel completely out the sea and brings up all these, like, really uncomfortable emotions. But it was very important to me to establish throughout the story that Matt's attraction to her and his feelings for her are absolutely real and there's no despite going on from his point of view um since i wasn't writing for ge anymore i was like okay i'm actually going to have some serious sexuality in this story and uh whatever her insecurities that may emerge over later on in the story i wanted it to be very clear that they were generated from inside of her and weren't coming from him and when you hang out with ashley when she plays roles like she's like she's amazingly good at like um at the, like with the intimate scenes, she's like a real sexual charge to her acting and she's very, and she, actually's, like totally, uh, uh, like, like body and hilarious and fun and sexy. Like you, when you hang out with her and stuff like that, like I think there's like, um, I think there's like a bit of a gulf between like who Ashley is when you hang out with her and like maybe what's some, what's happened sometimes with, with her casting. Um, so it was kind of great fun to be able to have and say like, here is this totally sexual character, totally like, who totally scores a hot guy in this story and the hot and there's no sense whatsoever of like uh, uh the hot guy being like uh, there's no qualification to his attraction to her
0: i don't mean to suggest that i know you don't either that Dax's value as a person is not contingent on her attractiveness to men but rather situating this character in a broader cultural context where you know women over 40 are not sexualized to the extent that men over 40 are.
3: Right, and that was a big thing. It's like I because I, I felt like um you don't see that many older women younger man stories that aren't like sort of played for comedy uh to some extent and I think that that's a, a bummer. In sort of the classic noir story, there's like the drifter guy or whatever. Um and or he's, he's a drifter or he's or he's down on his luck or he's in an unhappy marriage or something like that and there's this beautiful alluring woman who comes into his life and, t- and, like, he falls for her hard. She completely scrambles his brains. He'll do anything for her. But he's the point-of-view character. His sexiness, he might be sexy, he might not be sexy, but his sexiness is never put to the question in the story because a lot of those stories are written by men. The man is the POV character. The man is the character with agency. And, and you know, the, the femme fatale, she might turn out to have some other agenda later on or maybe she doesn't. But her primary... Focus in the story as being this object of desire. And I was like, I really want to flip the script on that. I want to make the woman that main character and make the man the alluring, uh, the, the, the alluring object of desire that she falls hard for. And she'll do all this kind of stuff because men have always gotten to play that role. Now there's a certain danger. It was something I was really worried about, something I was really mindful of was like, you know, cause I know there's been a, a real push to say, let's have stories where women aren't defined by a man, you know. Right. And th- there was a real worry on my part. It's like, well, oh my God, am I ready? But I think, But I think what happens a lot with, when people talk about those stories is like w- women who are like supporting characters who are defined as wives or as mothers, as girlfriends or whatever. And like, they don't have a, a whole lot of other stuff in the plot. And, um, uh, and Dak, I, Dak was very much the main character who we're going to experience the entire story with. She's in every single scene. Matt's not in every single scene. She's our POV character. She's the one we spend the whole story with. And like when I sat down and really thought it through, it's like, we're writing a noir story about a person who goes to extraordinary lengths for love. I was like, you know what? At a certain point, I just don't think that that's a demeaning thing. I mean, she has a very strong identity in the story. She's the security chief of the station. She has a very successful military career behind her. She's widely respected by everybody that she works with. It's very clearly established that she is a person with a whole existence and a whole set of accomplishments beyond this relationship. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I actually don't think it's a demeaning thing for someone to fall really hard for someone else. It's an experience that we all go through. It's never considered demeaning when a man plays it. And I don't think it should be considered demeaning when a woman plays it. I mean, obviously, I can't tell audience members how they should react. But I will say I did have that concern at the very outset when I decided my main character was going to be a woman. And and I was very concerned because Dak is a majorly flawed character, just like the, the male lead of, of a noir movie or novel usually is because they have to do all kinds of different, like, despicable things to move their crime plan forward. She's a very flawed character, but she's also a very Mm -hmm. strong character. Mm -hmm. She's got a lot of wonderful qualities. She's got a lot of not wonderful qualities. She's a deeply complex character. And at a certain point, I have to believe in a principle I have, which is basically that I don't write admirable, idealized characters. I write hugely complex, hot messes of characters, because that's what I tend to think most people are. And if I'm writing a woman in the lead role, that character is going to be as much of a hot mess as any of the men that I sometimes will write lead roles for. My goal wasn't so much to make Dak an inspirational, admirable figure in that respect, but to make her a complex, deeply human person with a whole mix of qualities. Writing about humanity just sort of means that you are going to run into some of those things. Characters and stories aren't thinking about behaving way, in ways that will be necessarily admirable in a way that that, that could be read socio politically as admirable later on. And so I have to hope that Dax's complexity will be what people respond to. This dovetails into my next question.
0: I was curious because you've said you moved away from a more autobiographical, expository even exhibitionist style of writing after college. How do you work to create characters outside of yourself and your personality and things that you've experienced? At least I hope, right? Like Ross is a widower. I hope to God you're not a widower, right? Maude is is non-binary. Dak is a a woman in her middle age. How do you develop these characters with, you know, the respect and courtesy that they deserve while also balancing those needs against making them complex and flawed?
3: Well, well, one thing I, I should confess is that, like, once the scripts are actually written... I always do find bits and bobs of me throughout them. Sure. And ever since I entered into a committed relationship and then got married, there was a big part of me early on where I basically very self-righteously said, I will never put our relationship into any script that we're writing. And and I never set out to, but Sandy, my <laughs> wife. Uh, she every once in a while, like she'll spot like a run of dialogue or a scene. Or a, or, a, or a dynamic between characters should be like, oh, you totally got that from us. Like, the, like it, at a certain point, um, um, it's impossible to completely keep that wall between yourself and the scripts from being porous. But I, I try very hard not to start from an autobiographical standpoint. A big part of it is just simply um, paying attention to people all the time, you know, paying attention to your friends, the people around you. It's like watching, you know, character dynamics, things like that uh the advent of social media means that like suddenly you can be exposed to the online manifestations of behavior from a very large number of people uh that's not quite the same as being around people in person but it does feed a lot of data into my brain um and 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 then the other element of that is this that um I really embrace the genre tropes of stories that I tell I sometimes I undercut them but I always like at least pay the respect to them that I think they deserve And so to a certain extent, keeping the autobiographical out of it is helped massively by paying attention to what kind of genre of story you are Mm -hmm. and doing the best job you can of telling that genre of stories. Teal of Stars is specifically a a sexy noir crime story. (laughs) And I wanted to follow all of the elements of the double indemnity, sunset boulevard, whatever. Those I really love those kinds of stories. I love the extraordinary tension of those kinds of stories. And so following along with those tropes, once you hit all the markers, that, all the buoy markers that you need to hit when telling a genre story, you've eaten up a lot of the room you have. <laughs> and so that's a lot of the room you've eaten up uh, without putting personal autobiographical stuff in it, which is what I've largely been trying to avoid for most of my adult life. What I've learned is that the personal and the autobiographical will slip through by accident. It'll be there anyway. I don't need to try to put it there. Sure. So what I focus on is trying to let the characters be themselves. Now, I mentioned before um, Dax's insecurity about being loved. Now, I certainly know that that's a feeling that I've had in my life. She manifests it in very different ways. I was able to extrapolate from a very small emotion I have. Like I said earlier, I've lived a very mild life. I have very mild feelings. I, I was able to extrapolate from a very mild emotion that I had and blow it up into an all consuming thing for her. Dax manifested in extraordinarily different ways. You can't you can't listen to any scene in Steal the Stars and know about anything that ever happened to me in my life. But what you can do is, like, you can get a glimpse of a very tiny feeling that I've had in my past and see it blown up into a supersized feeling uh, uh, with Dak in terms of, like, what she goes through. But yeah, by and large, I, um, I try to give characters their own dignity and I try to separate them from me as much as possible. There's no way, if you know me, there's no way you would think of Dak as an autobiographical character. She's way too competent. She's way <laughs> too good at a, at, a, at a broad skill set. She's a person that everybody regards as ultra reliable. You know, she's a leader of people. She's like way awesomer than, than me. Anyone who knows me would never mistake it. I mean, your names, your names do rhyme. They do rhyme. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she's sort of a Mary Sue for me because she's so, uh, she's so, uh, She's so competent in ways that I'm not. But um once you start fighting for the character's specific agenda, that ends up eating up a lot of the time that you might accidentally start making them you. And also just basically finding all the different cadences that everybody speaks with, um, uh, to make sure the characters don't all sound like each other. Uh, once you start finding those different cadences, then that also eats In order to keep something from being too solipsistic, this is the TLDR of everything I've just been saying, in order to keep something from being too solipsistic, personal or autobiographical, you basically need to fill up all the real estate that you'd be filling up with that with genre tropes, with individual agendas, and with individual vocal cadences and speaking styles. Once you've done all that stuff, there is almost no room left to project yourself into stories. Cool.
0: Thank you. I had never thought of it that way. I noticed one of the actors in Steal the Stars is Abe Goldfarb, a voice actor who's been in numerous excellent independent computer games, especially those made by Dave Gilbert's Wadjet Eye games. Um, Now that you've tried audio fiction, are you interested in going into interactive fiction? I saw that there was an alternate reality game for The Message, but I haven't played it.
3: Oh, you know, I haven't played it either, actually.
0: Did you write it? Did you make it?
3: No, 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 no. I wasn't. I, I was not... The thing with the message of life after is that they were very sort of writer for hire stories. There was whole lots of other elements going on that I wasn't directly um, involved in. But to your question, I mean, first of all, the short answer to your question is I'm a professional writer. I live paycheck to paycheck. I will write anything (laughs) that pays, that isn't, that isn't hugely morally objectionable. I actually wrote a play a number of years ago, back before I tried to move away from the autobiographical. I wrote a, I I wrote a, a play, um, that it's just sort of imagined a person very much like me in midlife who'd completely failed at playwriting, who is given the opportunity to write an interactive virtual reality game that he doesn't want to do it. He feels like it's totally selling out, but he discovers a whole new obsession by moving into that. And uh, I think that was projecting a, a fear of mine that you know that I'd be sort of subsumed by something else. I think the older I get. The less I think of taking on different writing challenges as a fear and more as an exciting opportunity. People have talked to me about VR. Occasionally nothing's ever uh, gotten, gone as far as a job. I think once upon a time, I would have regarded writing interactive material as being just terrifying and distasteful. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I like to basically create a whole experience. Well, I like to create a whole story. And, um, and one of a big belief I have is that is that stories don't work if they're entirely crowd-pleasing. You're supposed to give the audience also a healthy dose of what they don't want.
0: If you haven't played it, I think you would really like Wadget Eye's Blackwell games. Abe plays a, uh, a ghost. The main character takes place in New York. The main character is this uh, reporter named Rosangela Blackwell, and she is a, a spirit medium, like a, a wholly unwilling spirit medium, and she thinks she's going nuts um and she and this ghost from the 30s played by Abe go around new york solving mysteries and putting people to rest
3: that is awesome you know like cuz that's a big blind spot in my life not just just like online games or computer games or video games like but also um i, I totally am unfamiliar with that mm-hmm. side of abe's career i mean i know it exists like i've definitely you know followed a lot of abe's work as an actor i followed his work as a director uh i've worked with him in both capacities And I've definitely followed his work as a burlesque host. So it's Bastard Keith. Um, and (laughs) uh, I didn't
0: know. Yeah. yeah, Interesting. I've
3: I've gone to see, I've gone to see burlesque shows that he's hosted. Um, cool. But that's a whole part of his career that I haven't followed. And I think I would actually really, I think I'm at the point of my life where I think I'm a lot more adventurous and going into different kinds of styles. And also where I have as I get older, I have a strong desire to not become irrelevant. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a big part of me that like wants to go where the party is. And um, uh, I think that uh, I think I'd probably really enjoy the challenge of writing interactive entertainment. Uh,
0: So I saw Jordana Williams is directing Steal the Stars. Correct. I saw from her credits she's directed at least four of your other plays, your your Honeycomb Trilogy and Universal Robots. Right. How long have you been working with her?
3: Actually, a very long time. Um, a very long time. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely over 20 years. I mean, uh, we first worked together. Um, my sophomore, her freshman year of college, we both went to, uh, along with Sean Williams, my co-producer, we all went to UNC Chapel Hill, uh, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Uh, Jordana was a freshman and I was a sophomore. I wrote a, um, one of my epic three-hour, very personal plays called The Cause of Thunder that we did in the student theater there. And Jordana acted in it. God, I, I honestly don't know what year that is, but it was definitely more than 20 years ago. That was the first thing we ever worked together on. Sean and Jordana were not a couple in college. They uh, uh, became a couple later. And when Sean moved to New York to live with Jordana, he got us to form this theater company, Gideon Productions, named after um, G- Gideon was the name of a Dungeons and Dragons character. He played with some friends for many years.
0: I was going to ask about D&D, but I wasn't sure how far it extended into your life.
3: I mean, I had played a little bit when I was younger. Um, I read all the manuals voraciously a lot more than I actually played. I think I enjoyed a lot more reading all the world building than I did, you know, the the dice rolling and whatnot. But I, I did play somewhat. You know, Sean played a lot and he played that character Gideon for so long that that became. Uh, and we formed this production company in 99, did our first play, the one I was talking about before in 2000. And we went, it's really amazing that we all still work together because we That's went through really cool. all the stuff in our first couple of shows in New York that most theater companies go through when someone shows up in New York and forms a theater company. We went through all the stuff where people go through it and they decide it's not worth it and the theater company breaks up. We managed to stay together and we it was excruciatingly slow. Every advance has been so incremental. But over the years, going from that first play in 2000, over the years, we very, very slowly built a reputation piece by piece by piece by piece until uh, by the time we got to the Honeycomb Trilogy, you know, we were actually able to start attracting really big media to review the shows. We started getting, like, you know, a whole lot more kinds of attention that we'd never gotten before. It just took a very long time to climb that ladder. Uh, Jordana wasn't a director when we were first in New York, our first several productions. Um, she was an actor or, or, or a producer, uh, or both, uh, but then I think around 2003, 2004, she, uh, she directed a short play of mine, then a slightly longer one, then a full length. And then she basically discovered that directing was really her comfort zone. She'd originally intended to be an actor, but, um, and, uh, uh I think she basically enjoyed acting, but I think she didn't like the career side of it at all. And she doesn't miss it now. I think she gets a real thrill off of directing. She's directed like, you know, a lot of my really best stuff we have a massive comfort level where we work together and she really knows how to direct my stuff.
0: Do you find yourself writing things specifically to her strengths as a director, or do you write more for the actors or neither?
3: Well, I, I think there's a combination where, um, what I try to do, I don't always succeed at this. What I try to do is write something that plays to my collaborator's strengths, but also introduces a new element, tries to push us all into a little bit of a new frontier. Um, I also try to mix it up a little bit in terms of working with people that I've worked with for a long time and have a real comfort level with. I think it is very important to bring in new artists into your life. You learn a lot from new people. Uh, and it's, and it challenges a lot of things and it, you know, keeps you from falling too much into ruts or habits. You know, like I said, I've worked with Jordana's direct was, but working with John Dryden taught me tons of new things. You know, I hope I'll always work with Jordana, but I do think that from time to time I should be working with other directors because I learn new things from them and, in learning things from them, I enrich the relationship with, with Jordana as well. But I, I'd say like, there's a lot of actors, like, well, I'll write a role specifically for a specific actor and I'll go, I'll try to make it be something that I know they could do really well, but also involves an ingredient that I've never seen them do before, not just to push them, but to push me as well. And, you know, I think I try a lot of that same stuff with, with Jordana is like, you know, like, uh, uh, oh, I'll, I'll write one scene. I'll be like, oh, man, Jordana just going to run with it. She's just going to love it. And then I'll do another scene. I'll be like, hey, you know, she, she's going to be a little less comfortable with this one. This scene's going to bug her a little bit. Um, but the problem-solving process that she's going to go through to figure out how to make this happen is going to be enriching for her. And it's also going to be enriching for me. I don't remotely think of myself as some kind of guru to my colleagues where I'm figuring out how they need to be pushed and what new levels. It's a collaborative. We're all trying to get better together. I'm not smarter than any of my colleagues, but there's, but simply because of the particular (laughs) role that I play in the projects that we create, like I'm sort I'm at the beginning end of the assembly line. So um, if anyone's going to make sure that there's some new challenges in the material, that's going to have to start with me. And then other people will amplify how we handle those challenges in ways that I never thought of.
0: Cool. Yeah. In 2013, you said you used to view playwriting as highly private. But now you've come around to the opposite of that.
3: Yes, uh, and it was really the Honeycomb trilogy that taught me that because prior to the Honeycomb Trilogy, um, we simply hadn't been able to uh, mount productions on a level that had fully realized design. The productions were basically designed enough to for them to exist on stage, to basically give the audience the idea of where they were taking place. but we had we didn't have the opportunity yet to like just comprehensively design the shows. With the Honeycomb Trilogy, we were able to put together the funding and 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 reach out to the right people. We had a whole cadre of designers on that, including my wife, Sandy, um, uh, doing her first set designs. She really rocketed it out of the gate. She has a real natural talent for set design. Oh, cool. But all of the designers on that show, they taught me a lot about the story in ways that I never met. The design, the design elements they came up with ended up going into the script in a lot of different ways. I'd learned it wasn't just the director and the actors who serve as important um, collaborators. The designers are really important collaborators. And as a result, over time, I've come to see writing as a uh, a very collaborative exercise. I mean, I write all the lines, I write all the stage directions, whatever, but lots and lots of other people give uh, give their input. And over time, I've learned to be much less frightened of feedback than I used to be. Partly that's from learning that, like, I'm going to be wrong about a lot of stuff, and a lot of people's, I'm going to need a lot of that feedback in order to make the scripts better. But also the realization that I also don't have to accept the feedback. That just because I read or heard a piece of feedback, if I know it's wrong, I don't use it. I mean, if I have the power to, I don't always have the power to. Sometimes I'm in a situation where, in a play, I'm the boss of the script. In other circumstances, it's a bit more of a negotiation. You know, obviously, film the TV. Other people are totally the boss of the script. Right. In audio drama, I've had a lot of um, my collaborators have given me a lot of leeway. So most of the time, if I think a note is completely ridiculous, I just don't uh, use it. What I've learned is really to listen to to listen to collaborators a lot, and I've really learned that a script develops among a group of people. It's not the kind of thing you go into your garret and just generate and then hand off to other people. It's a document that continues to evolve when it makes contact with other people. And um, uh, and uh, that's been a joyous process. And I think it's made my plays a lot better. What is
0: next for you? What's going to happen after steal the stars? Do you have anything in the hopper that you're especially excited about?
3: It's gotten harder to answer questions like that because uh, since I turned to whatever extent professional, because a lot of times the next thing will be something that is in contractual negotiations. And so I and I can't announce it until the company hiring me has announced it. Uh, We should all
0: be so unlucky
3: yeah know it's, it's exactly exactly it's, <laughs> i i have only been a a professional scriptwriter for about a year and a half now, or maybe edging upwards two years but it, it, and and while I've discovered a lot of challenges inherent in that life, I have never forgotten how lucky I am, even if it only lasts for a short while longer, you know even if it all goes away lots of people don't even experience a couple years as a professional scriptwriter uh, it's 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 uh, it's tremendous good fortune. The thing that would be taking up most of my time coming next is a thing I can't talk about because it's in contract negotiations. But I, what I can say is it would be another um, multi-part audio adventure miniseries. This time, it would have more of a horror flavor than a science fiction flavor. Okay. I hope I can be a lot more public about it soon. Uh, I just need to definitively make sure that this uh, deal is going to close and wait till the company involved gives the go-ahead to announce it. Beyond that, I know that... Um, Gideon Media is hoping to adapt um, some of our plays to audio after Steal the Stars is aired, and then maybe we'll put out a few one-offs into the world. And I am hoping to get back to playwriting in a big way. I've only been able to write a few small things here and there uh, uh, the last year or two with with the audio demands on my life. But I definitely, I have a few play ideas, all of which are science fiction flavored, that I'm hoping I can get back into that. And also at the same time, I'm working on trying to because I finally have some professional help with this, I'm working on marketing some of my stuff to film and television in the hopes that I might be able to work in some of those industries nice. uh, for a little while. I never want to give up theater and audio because there's a tremendous amount of autonomy and I deeply love both those art forms and theater is the love of my life. I mean, theater is the, um, is the art. Well, my wife is love of my life. Theater is the art love of my life. I suspect that I'll always come back to a stage in some form or another but what I've discovered in in the move to audio the last few years is that it hasn't been a mercenary move at all. I've discovered a deep a deep love for this art form uh, and the possibilities inherent in it.
0: Well, Mac, I wish you so much luck with your upcoming projects. Thank you so much for coming on RDR. This was wonderful.
3: Thank you for your extraordinary patience. I, uh, <laughs> Likewise, I, I've never figured. I still have not figured out the media savvy necessary to answer questions in a few words. Uh, I really need to do that.
0: You can follow Mac Rogers on Twitter at MacWrites and steal the Stars at SteelstarsPod. And keep your eyes peeled for the novelization of the podcast coming out in November. With the exception of this and Night Vale, no other podcast novelizations spring to mind. If you can think of any, tell us about them. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Radio Drama Revival. And now... Continuing this magnificent tradition-slash-trap I have created for myself, it is time to elaborate further on the spooktober lies I tell about my team in the credits. That's right, the credits are themselves a story. So buckle the fuck up, kids! Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger, whose music can be found on SoundCloud. All right, so here's the deal. If you're not caught up with our increasingly absurd credits for the month of Spooktober, line producer Matt Boudreau is a werewolf, interviews producer Eli McElveen is a vampire, researchers Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau are goblins, and executive producer Fred Greenhalge is a demon sorcerer known as Nialu and the Funky Bunch. And this is a story about how they came together to steal the sacred ham of Mallorca. We must strike at night, said Eli, turning first into a smoky bat, and then a kitty's hog-nosed bat. That is when Matthew will be at his strongest, and when I will be able to help also. Heather held up her prototype day suit. But how will you ever know if you can survive the daylight if you don't get to try my suit, Eli? I admire the stitching, said Eli, turning into a pygmy fruit bat, which was the cutest bat, except for the and white bat. But I cannot take the risk of being burned to a bat crisp. Oh, said Monique, scratching behind her ears with a wrench. We made it mostly sunproof. Enough! shouted Nialu in his thousand voices. I require the ham of Majorca to sustain my eldritch energies and unholy form. You mean this ham of Majorca? said Matt, striding into the room, his furry shoulders scraping the doorjamb, his flannel shirt now comically too small for his elongated wolf torso. He tossed a 200-pound magical black ham onto the blueprints in the center of the table. Eli's compass careened away and embedded itself, quivering in the wall eli turned into a malaysian flying fox you got the ham but what about all the ham museum's magical countermeasures what countermeasures said matt as the ham began to swirl with nightmarish shadow energy from out of the mists a hand emerged and then another and then another the magical countermeasure took shape in a ham-handed way just like the ham-handed way i am telling this story and delivered that joke Tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion of Radio Drama Revival and the Ham of Majorca. It's Spooptober. Stay weird, my buddies. I have been your sommelier of scares, your maitre d' of malevolence, your busboy of boo, David Reinstrom, And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.
3: b b b b ne